0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Benjamin Ensor. Thank you for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? That's how fintech friends forever are made. This week, we're talking about JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs' very different approaches to the consumer market. We talked about how JP Morgan is investing in Brazilian digital bank C6 at the very same time that Goldman Sachs has sold its personal financial management unit. And we talked about the difference in heritage between JP Morgan, which acquired the Chase Manhattan retail banking business, and Goldman Sachs with its largely investment banking and capital markets heritage. Is that what's made the difference between their strategies? African fintech investment has surpassed 2 billion US dollars as Mpesa enters Ethiopia for the first time. We talked about the fantastic, substantial opportunities right across. Uh, the diverse and huge continent, and the importance of mobile money as a foundational technology that enables all sorts of other fintech opportunities to be built, as it enables um, easier movement of money between countries or it enables people to start investing, start getting insurance, and so on. So, fantastic news um, from Ethiopia. And Venmo and Hallmark team up for birthday gifts not trashy movies yet. And we talked about how Venmo's partnership with Hallmark to enable people to send money to their younger relatives digitally is is a really interesting opportunity. But how exactly are they going to persuade those older relatives who currently send cheques to send digital money instead? So we get into all of this and much more on today's show. Back after these messages.
1: This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favourite hosts and big name guests.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me back.
1: Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? It's standing yeah. moment. We are bringing After Dark to the village underground in London on the 20th of September. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11 slash after dark. Thank you very much for joining us everybody. Good night. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design research Strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customers' relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures.
0: Welcome to episode 778 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by two great guests, three great guests, to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my 11FS co-host, which is why I tripped over how many guests I had, uh, David Barkin-Grimley, Strategy Director at 11FS. Welcome, David. Have you been working on anything interesting lately?
3: I have. I'm working on a project in a very, very small country, which is a super interesting contrast to banking in big markets.
0: Fantastic. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. Uh, We also have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Sarah Kachansky, who is an independent fintech consultant. Many of you will know Sarah very, very well as a former host of this podcast. But Sarah, what should our newer listeners know about you and what you've been working on more recently?
2: Thank you, Benjamin. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. It's always quite nice being this side. I don't have to work quite as hard because I don't have to, you know, I just have to think of intelligent things to say. I don't actually have to, you know, structure the conversation and and herd the wildcats that we are. Um, I've been working on quite a few interesting things recently. I've been writing an annual report for a company. Um, I've been planning a keynote uh, for a customer's uh, internal customer, well, one of my clients, customer day, Um, and planning some travel. I think I'm going to be off to the US in October. So um, lots of exciting things going, always busy. I'm going to be off to Arizona in October, which is amazing because Arizona in October is a lovely 30 degrees and anybody who's in the UK right now will know that we've missed summer this year. So um, project very exciting, but also very excited to be somewhere warm later on.
0: I'm very envious. Well, our next guest um, is rather closer to Arizona than than the rest of us. So we have a fintech insider news debut for Sami Zahid, director of engineering at ChipperCash. Welcome to the show. Can you remind our audience about ChipperCash and uh, anything our audience should know about about you and and your company?
4: Yeah, thanks, Benjamin. Uh, great to be here. Hi, everyone. Um, So to get started, I'll I'll talk about Chipper. So Chipper, um, it's a FinTech uh, focused on the African continent. We're proudly serving more than 5 million customers. Uh, We recently celebrated our five years of operation. um, And since day one, right, for us, the goal has been to really revolutionize money movement in Africa and go even beyond uh, just providing a frictionless way to send and receive funds, right, cross-border. So we started off with peer-to-peer payments, but have steadily increased our product suite. So we also offer things such as personal investments in stocks, crypto, uh, digital business transactions as part of our Chipper for Business suite. Um, And kind of getting everyone up to date, uh, this week we kind of reviewed our newest offering, uh, Chipper ID. So this is something we're very excited about as the the product is powered by AI and machine learning to, again, kind of do identity verification 2.0. So we're kind of really trying to innovate in this space and and especially on the continent where onboarding and verification is a big, big uh, concern um, for a lot of fintech startups uh, on the content, all the way from friction, but also like regulation, compliance, and then also CAC, right? So we're uh, really excited to uh, share this with the world this week. Um, but yeah.
0: Super, super it. interesting. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the show, um, to, to, to both both of our guests. Okay, well, let's let's get into the news. So, our first story uh, was reported in Reuters and Finextra and various other places, um, which is that J.P. Morgan is increasing its stake in the Brazilian digital bank C6. Even as Goldman Sachs sells off its personal financial management unit. So, JP Morgan has increased its stake in the Brazilian digital bank C6 to 46% from 40% and says that this is a really important part of its global strategy. JP Morgan bought its initial stake in June 2021. And since then, C6 has grown from 8 million to 25 million customers and from 9.5 billion reais to 40 billion, um, which is 8.2 billion US dollars. By contrast, Goldman Sachs is continuing its retreat from mass market banking, selling off its personal financial management unit to Creative Planning this week, uh, and it's already put the Apple credit card business uh, into a new platform solutions unit alongside the firm's transaction banking operations, and there's huge question marks over the future of, of Marcus and what format that's going to continue in, and it's also selling off its BNPL outfit, Greensky. So... Big contrast there, but first let's start with um, Brazil, David. Maybe let's come come to you first. Um, is investing in Brazil a sensible step for J.P. Morgan? Is this a good market for J.P. Morgan to play? And it seems a sort of non-obvious move um, for you know John Pierpont Morgan, the sort of emblematic American firm. Why Brazil? Why?
3: Well, it's really interesting. I mean, Brazil is a massive market, right? Um, and, you know, you, you said that C6 has got something like 25 million customers. You look at a bank like Nubank, which I think we all know quite well, um, is reported to have something like seventy-five million customers. So given the size of the market, the proximity to the US, um, the fact that New Bank, for example, offers services overseas, I think it's kind of an interesting one. Um, it also matches in in some senses JP Morgan's heritage. I mean it's got a, you know, a pretty substantial retail bank with Chase, right? So I I, I definitely don't think it it is as perhaps odd as as we as we might think.
0: Sarah what what do you think the the um the Brazilian market's obviously increasingly competitive uh, do you think JP Morgan's backing the right horse do you think there's lots of growth opportunities in Brazil
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, all of the Latin American, the entire continent, there's huge opportunities there across the board. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, some of the digital only banks, the startup banks, I mean, New Bank is the one that always comes to mind when you talk about Brazil, but it's by no means the the only one there have spotted, uh, you know, those opportunities and, and got their wedge products in whether those are credit cards or current accounts. But there's huge, huge underserved population across the board, you know, you've got basic financial services, but all the way up to wealth management, insurance, all of these are things that need to be delivered in ways that people can access and you know crucially for the Latin American market in ways that are fair for people to access I mean traditionally there's been a lot of issues with the the traditional banks and the way that they have offered services the fees they've charged the, the way they've penalized customers etc cetera, etc cetera. so opportunities are huge and um, JPM isn't stupid. Uh, any investment they make, uh, there's, there's a you know a plan behind it. They'll have looked at the market properly. Um, they've got lots of fingers and lots of pies. You know, look at what they're doing in the UK. They launched Chase here, the digital only brand, but they've also bought Nutmeg. You know, there's whatever the rationale is for them doing it. It will be sensible. Um, I have to say, I don't know this one in detail, um, but it's not far from their home market and. In terms of you know geographically, um, and also you know it makes sense expansion-wise. I was actually talking to somebody the other day who was saying you know a client of mine who was saying you know we'd love to potentially buy a US bank, get a, a license to go into the US that way. It's a lot easier than acquiring a license. We're just concerned that JPM would have bought all the available banks before we get there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's quite a good that's sort of quite a good um, anecdote to tell you kind of what what. JPM's current strategy is, it's certainly in acquisition mode. Of
0: course, it was really Bank of America, a formerly Nations Bank, which was the one that really sort of hoovered up, you know, dozens and dozens of American banks. I'm, I'm amused and interested by your comment on, you know, JPMorgan and everything they do is sort of sensible and well thought through. And I'm sure that is true. But we might have thought the same about Goldman Sachs a couple of years ago, right? Um, well, but- the
2: Goldman Sachs doesn't have the heritage JPM does in the retail business. That, I mean, and I, I think, you know, Goldman's lost its way a bit um, and I also think that change of personnel at Goldman's had an impact on you know what's been decided. And particularly if you look at Marcus, for example, the people who came in and launched it and founded it moved on, and then it kind of floundered a bit. Um, so I think to to David's point, the heritage JPM has gives it an advantage over over Goldman, definitely.
0: Sammy, I'd love to bring you in here, I mean, particularly as, as as someone based in America, thinking about you know what does an American firm bring to um, you know, businesses operating in other emerging markets and other markets and so on. I mean, if if you look at this from the point of sort of C6, yeah, sure, they're getting some capital from J.P. Morgan. And of course, that's that's nice. That's not really necessarily fresh capital. I'm not, I think it's just, you know, buying some existing stake. What, what, does, what does having a big backer from a, you know, developed market like the United States bring in, do you think?
4: Uh, that's, you know, thank you. I think that's a great question. I think when we kind of look at, space for emerging markets um of course one of the things that pops up is things like you know traditional finance know-how even if my give my my opinion in terms of engineering right there's also a question of engineering talent right so i think when we operate for instance a chipper kind of having that kind of middle ground of getting expertise um you know from from a lot of the more uh you know developed uh kind of infrastructure and then kind of placing that in emerging markets but of course that is a a very tough balance to achieve because you also don't want to simply, you know, because regulatory environments are very different, um, right? Like, and and especially the market can be very different, but you really um, kind of leverage a lot of the, you know, the money, the connections uh, to essentially make sure, you know, you're giving yourself less of a handicap to play um, in these worlds. So, you know, we have a lot of partners. We work with a lot of partners, for instance, at Chipper to do, You know, uh, even remittance flows to the U.S., but also just like, you know, when you look at things like credit um, and lending and and a bit of the new aid services, you do see, though, you kind of have to drive it with a balance. I feel like a lot of emerging market uh, fintechs who do end up taking money uh, right from institutional investors outside, um, they do kind of fall into this rhythm of like, let's just try to copy over solutions Hmm. right from your developed regions Uh, But I do think taking that money has to come with a grain of salt. But I think your point is correct. A lot of people sometimes overcorrect, try to really utilize that established money in a way that can be a bit problematic. But I think when we look into the context of C6, um, I think it can give them a lot. Um, New bank, for instance, excellent engineering execution. We're big fans. And I think, you know, they grew with word of mouth organically. It was basically the product selling itself. So I think what I would expect to see from C6 is using some of this, Uh, enhancing their engineering product talent. AM on its own has really good ENG product talent, but again, really doubling down on that, I feel like lending is going to be probably their make or break, Um, so we'll we'll see. But I do think uh, there always is a caveat when we talk about taking money right from uh, a lot of uh, fintechs like outside of uh, their core market regions.
0: David, what, what do you think on this point? I mean, there, there's there's a lot of digital banks in Brazil. I mean, you mentioned New Bank earlier, and everyone tends to focus on New Bank. But of course, there's Banco Original, there's uh, Neon, there's PagBank, etc. There's a whole bunch of you know uh, digital banks really shaking up the Brazilian market a bit, like as Sarah was saying. Um, does how does this help C6? I mean, does does having the backing of a J.P. Morgan is that going to help them with their strategy? I mean, it's nice to have,
3: but it's an interesting point, right? They're already growing. Um, so what are they actually going to do with this I think maybe what you what you do is you look at international scale maybe um, if they're moving to other developing markets areas maybe uh, JP Morgan has licenses in that they don't have licenses in that might be that might be an interesting area uh, it could be an eventual exit there's all sorts of different sort of paths I think that they can take with a a big bank like JP Morgan or owning such a massive stake of 46 percent is a pretty huge minority stake in in the business so yeah, I I would say I would say licensing and, and regulation and the eventual sale is 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 probably the big one for me. Got it.
0: All right. Um Sammy, I'd love to get your take on the sort of contrast between JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. and maybe, maybe this is a slightly unfair question to to throw at you, but um you know, for, from from a US perspective, um do you can you see the things that can you see things that are contributing to JP Morgan being relatively successful while Goldman Sachs is stumbling? Is it just that retail banking heritage that we're talking about, do you think? Or do you think there's other other factors in play that sort of um, been tripping up Goldman while JP Morgan seems to be you know, um, steadily moving and happily moving along? Uh,
4: I, I, I do think at some point, right, like when we look at Goldman uh, kind of being the flag bearers for a lot of fintech in the US where I guess Apple Card being a big flagship product on their side, right? Um, Marcus, um, you know, their outfit kind of taking a lot of this kind of new prism. So I think a lot of these efforts, they have kind of started in good faith. They have yielded returns. But I think, let's say, when we look at JP Morgan, going out, buying out a stake in C6 in an emerging market, um, I think, honestly, I feel like Goldman should be, yes, we should expect more. Um, And I think, you know, to that end, it does mean, like, how much of it's just a lagging indicator? Are they waiting on others to kind of take some bets? seeing, so maybe their thesis is a bit, right? Like, it's still pretty early days. And I will be honest, especially at Chipper, we've been at it for like, not like five years. It feels way longer, but I think it's still pretty early days, right? So I think when we look at this decade, I think by the end, that's where I probably see a lot of, you know, when we look at the Fentagio system, Latam, Africa, Asia, we will see a more consolidation. And perhaps that's where maybe Goldman might step in. Um, at least that's my take, yeah.
0: Sarah, I'm going to give you the last word uh, on, on on this story. Um, do you think this is, is this a smart move by J.P. Morgan? Uh, what do you think of the contrast between Goldman and, and J.P. Morgan's strategies?
2: Um, well, I mean, as I said, I don't know... I mean, J.P. Morgan makes, they're very clever about what's made public and what isn't made public. So whatever the strategy is, I, I you know, there are plenty of people out there who, who do know what it is. I don't know what it is because I don't work for them and I'm not inside Jamie Damon's mind. Um, <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Um, I think it's unfair to contrast J.P.M. and Golden because they're fundamentally different businesses. Um, I don't, th- I think I have a, a real bugbear with people who try, it happens in the UK, people try and compare Monzo and Revolut, Well, one's a licensed bank and one isn't. So why are you trying to compare their business models or their costs or what they're doing, um, so I don't I don't think it's necessarily fair to to compare the two in terms of what JPM is doing specifically in Brazil. I think it's a sound market. I think the bank that you know that they've invested in seems like it's doing really well. It seems like a good place for them. I don't you know. to to, to make this investment and um, you know 40 to 46% doesn't sound like a huge leap but I don't know the thresholds in Brazil I know that in the UK once you go over a certain threshold of ownership you are required to put in an acquisition bid so I don't know how close JPM is to doing that and whether this um, extra investment or you know increased ownership share is a step towards that or whether it's part of something else but um, in the long run I I'm very happy to watch and see with interest um anything that's happening in the Latin America market.
0: I think you're probably right. It's the most they can do, um, probably without making a, f- a full acquisition. I think the I think the comparison of JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs is is fair in the sense that JP Morgan, JP Morgan's origins are also in investment banking. The big difference is, of course, JP Morgan acquired Chase Manhattan Bank, which is a big retail bank, and therefore it has that retail banking heritage that, that Goldman doesn't have. Okay, well, let's move on to our next story, which came from Disrupt Africa, and is that African startups raised 2.7 billion in VC funding over the past year. Africa's fintech startup ecosystem is growing rapidly with a number of startups operating in African fintech, increasing by 18% to 678 since 2021, according to the recent report by Disrupt Africa. Fintech is still comfortably the most populated vertical within Africa's wider tech ecosystem, having maintained steady growth over the past two years. Overall, the number of fintech startups active across Africa has increased by 125% between 2017 and 2023. In the past two years, the number of funded ventures has essentially doubled, while the amount raised has more than trebled to $2.7 billion. Nigeria, Egypt, Kenya, and South Africa account for 91% of funding, the lion's share, with the biggest share going to Nigeria, pulling in more than $1.5 billion US dollars since 2015. The total funding for fintech since 2015 amounts to 3.6 billion, almost 3 times more than any other uh, tech sector in Africa. Sammy, let's come come to you first on this given um role in Africa. How how heartening are these findings? Is this is this good news? Is this really not enough given the size of the continent? I mean, it's sorry 2.7 billion sounds like a big number but it's not really when you look at the size of the continent
4: no no excellent points i think there's 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 a lot of nuance here right um but i think the key part though the headline still being right like after very tumultuous period um right like what i would say is pre-2015 i think there are two kind of time periods right uh to kind of look at which are key which is pre-2015 and then of course uh the hiccup because I was still caught a hiccup and still the resilience of the VC funding market in, in Africa that, you know, peak 2021, we're still seeing funding roll in, of course, less late stage, but like a lot more early stage deals being done since 21. But if you look at the more like broader lens since 2015, um, you know, if our own fundraising success um, at Chipper, right, was kind of the basically Um, right? Like that's where we kind of saw a lot of the trends kind of change. Uh, we had a lot of folks, starting to raise and I think kind of start developing this kind of FinTech ecosystem. But of course the thing is raising money, right? I think a a lot of considerations, raising money is more of a promise to execute, right? So I think we still need to see um, in the long tail how some of this money um, is efficiently deployed or is it more of just a cash grab um, in terms of just throw money, something will stick, some big players will emerge. So I think some of the ecosystem still needs to mature. Um, I'm from Pakistan, so it's a very similar, right? Like in Pakistan, emerging markets, you kind of see this first trade, uh, companies ending up in that Series A region, but then finding a lot of struggles, right? So I think the ecosystem has already been through that, So we're in that second wave of, of capital. Um, so it's really exciting, honestly. Like we are in that second, so there is progress. But to your point, um, you know, when we look at um, Africa 30, 40 years from now, from a population growth, from a GDP success rate story and, and all those things, I still think, It's a very, it's still early days and uh, definitely more money needs to be put in, uh, in the future um, on this side. And, you know, for today, for us at Chipper, we're very well supported by committed backers. So it's really kind of pleasing to see the narrative shift, right? Like going from pre-2051, like I mentioned, where you would go to investors and a lot of them would refer you to like fellowship grants. Uh, They would not see this as a money, yeah, money making (laughs) opportunity. Um, but now it's a very different. When you enter these rooms with investors, they understand money can be made. Um, and then there's big opportunities. So just that, that mind shift, honestly, um, has been very great. And you can see that um, in this kind of uh, Disrupt Africa piece, uh, kind of highlighting this. So exciting times.
0: So, from your perspective at Chipper Cash, this is just, you know just more money flowing into the content, and more investment is just is great news. You're not worried about some of it going to your, some of your potential competitors. Uh,
4: <laughs> no, no. I I think for us, I mean, honestly, we also like first, we we really want to ensure the ecosystem thrives because we also have honestly a lot of products at play. Like I mentioned, Chipper Identity, which we launched, is essentially a more of a uh, embedded fintech play going in. So we have a lot of these kind of partnerships and we are very well committed. Part of our reason, right, like things like, for instance, SCAC is very expensive uh, due to verification. We want to make sure that everyone has, they're not, right, like having to pay upwards of a dollar to acquire a user, um, right? Like that is crazy for someone in, you know, in Africa. So uh, the more people can start moving money, the more ecosystem thrives, the more talent thinking, right? For us, that is, right, like where we really want to step in and help lead that kind of uh, change in the ecosystem. So honestly more, yeah, uh, I would say an analog is right. Like early days for like something like the electric vehicle industry, right? When industries are popping up, you really need a lot of partners. You need ecosystems um, and Africa is not there yet. And we're really excited. So we have a bunch of, you know, mobile money players which I'm sure we'll talk about. So they're a bit of the legacy side. um, But then I really think true disruption honestly will come um, right from the ground, from these new startups. It's a big question on M&A and how that will emerge um, over the decade. But I do think a lot of the innovative stuff will be driven by VC-driven uh, um, investments.
0: Definitely. So CAC is the customer acquisition cost. Um, Sarah, where do you think the, the, the money is going? Where do you think the opportunities are for, for fintechs in, in Africa?
2: Yeah, I mean the, the obvious one and well, the obvious one is payments and remittances. Um and that's but that's almost like the low-hanging fruit, really. Uh, though interestingly, if you look at uh fintech funding across the world from H123, payments is still the top uh investment category in fintech. And it you think oh, surely we've solved pay- the payments <laughs> problems by now. But but you haven't because because there's a you know, there's a every every country has a different culture when it comes to money uh, and you know payments is a huge part of that every country has a different you know set of legacy players a different set of systems so you know it's not as simple as going oh we're just going to replace cash um, because because that's that's not quite how it works and and when we, we get on to some stories later we, we will see some of the difficulties particularly across uh, you know African nations with with the sort of just the infrastructural issues which mean that you have to develop specific solutions for specific countries and specific regions um so i think you know payment is obviously the obvious one um it's tangential to fintech but vital to its success and and sammy already mentioned it but i think identity verification uh really really important you know uh, we, we sort of almost think we've solved that places like the uk when you look at companies like Onfido, because most people across you know western europe do have an identity document you know here in the uk unfortunately you know it has to be well until recently you had to pay for that it had to be a driving license or a passport but still most people possessed one which meant you could build a system on top of that. Um, When you're looking at places where, you know, and then in in the rest of Europe, a lot of places have government issued identity cards. Again, you can use that as something, a foundation from which you can build a system. Um, When you don't have that, it becomes an incredible challenge. You know, India reckons it solved it with its UPI, Mm. but that's a huge program, vast amount of resources. And, you know, India had a top-down initiative to do it. The same with Brazil, when you're looking at the development of PICS, you know, the identity verification issue was solved by the government. Well, Africa doesn't have a government, it has many, many, many different governing authorities um, so if you can find a way to to help people you know, ver- to help companies verify individuals and individuals prove their identity then I think from there you can do a huge amount of, of other things on top of it, so I think that's another area that people are going to be really focused on um, I was trying to access this report earlier and I, and I couldn't get access to it but I, I'm really interested in knowing not necessarily as much as where the money's going to but where it's coming from um, uh, where is this money coming from is it is it particular regions in the rest of the world you know is it is it coming from asia is it coming from europe is it coming from china um i'd be i'd be really interested to know that so if anybody has managed to get hold of the report and and found that data that would be fascinating to me because i think that's another um element to be looked at and and that will also help you work out why money is going to certain countries or certain companies in certain countries i think
0: david i'm going to ask you the same question i asked sarah about where is the money going but where is she answered by sector she also made a lot of interesting points about the sort of countries that Africa's a vast continent obviously with almost 52 countries or something like that huge diversity why is all the money going to Egypt and Nigeria and, and South Africa and Kenya well,
3: well, I think one of the obvious answers to that question is size. I mean, you know, if you if you are an investor um, in fintech anywhere in the world and you're looking at where is going to be the new emerging markets that are just going to be receiving explosive growth, so growth in terms both of, you know, GDP per capita, population growth, infrastructure, everything like that, everything that needs finance, right, everything that needs banking... You know, really, yes, you can take India and park that to one side. It's so massive. You can take China, and China are facing some huge issues at the moment. Um, what you're what you're left with are countries like Brazil, like Egypt, like Nigeria, like South Africa. These very, very large countries, which which are growing, and and in some cases that's great. It's great for Africa as a continent. It's great for people in those countries. But but what it does mean is that scaling from those countries to some of the smaller countries, which are experiencing less growth and have you know some more structural and institutional issues becomes, I suppose, quite difficult to do. If you think about, you know, you're an investor sitting in San Francisco or in London or something like that, you're going to be making the bet, I think, in the country where you have the most confidence that you can you can grow within the country, I would imagine, without having to very, very quickly say, "Okay, right now we need to scale to three other countries in order to get the kind of um, saturation that we need." In which case, you're dealing with multiple regulators, multiple currencies, and, and, all, and all sorts of and all sorts of issues like that. So, I think my hunch is, I guess it's, that's probably one of the one of the big reasons.
2: Can I, can I just make another point, which has just occurred to me when I was looking at that list of countries, and I, and I don't know if this is um, accurate or not, but the list of countries you mentioned that are receiving 91% of the funding, they were all British colonies. And there is something to be said for the fact that money tends to go to systems that are understood. So if you look at, um, for example, regulation um, across the, you know, a lot of regulatory policies that are borrowed and copied – from the UK are borrowed and copied in places like the Middle East and Australia, where the regulatory system is based on a British system. So this could be purely speculative, but it may be that those nations are receiving the investment because they have similarities in their underlying infrastructure, which is a, a remnant um of you know the horrors of colonization but some of that stuff may may remain there so it's just it's just a thought but that's the thing that's that stands out to me when i look at those nations you've listed obviously they're also very big <laughs> which is also you know very valid point
0: Sammy, I'd love to bring you in to, to to wrap this story up, and also as someone who's at a company that makes decisions about which countries in Africa to to um, move into, um, how how do you make some of those decisions about countries? Because obviously you, you've got some very stable, very well run countries in Africa. You've also had quite a few that have had quite a bit of political instability, and so on. Um, you know, Sarah makes an interesting point about the sort of legal systems and so on. Um, how important is 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 the kind of the country and the government and so on to the decisions you make. How important is the size of the countries? How do, you, how do you sort of think about where the next opportunity for Cash is?
4: Uh, I think the way I would break it down, right, of course, is a lot of people can fall in this trap of like, okay, let's say we have, you know, Northern Africa, you have Sub-Saharan Africa, you have East Africa, West Africa, South Africa, big country in each of these regions, and then solidify your product, expand outward. Uh, the, Key part is like, for instance, we're launching in Zambia soon. You might seem, okay, you know, southern, eastern Africa, we've already been there. Moving to a satellite country or something like that should be very easy. But to the point which are, you know, a lot of people have already kind of expressed uh, earlier here is like going even to some, you know, a smaller country, right? It, 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 they have their own penal code. They have their own regulations. Some of them have not caught up. Uh, right, but when we talk about which countries, like for instance, we're looking a lot about regulatory, like their appetite for working with fintechs. I think that is probably the biggest consideration: how forward-looking their regulations are. Some countries, you know, we definitely see them flip-flopping every year on on you know you can do this, you can do that, um, and that kind of causes a lot of issues for us. So we are looking at stability, but I think at the end of the day, we are looking to prove and 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 our value prop when we enter those markets and when we feel when we have the right relationships in place, uh, when we have the right business model for that country in place, we really want to just go out and get um, uh, us out there in the market. So that's how we would think about it. But I think, again, regulatory concern, uh, seeing those relationships, understanding, working with regulators, that's been pretty much our kind of key go-to kind of playbook uh, when we look where to go. But, of course, market size and, you know, how many users, like in East Africa, for instance, you have Kenya, very fast growing, very progressive people, high mobile phone penetration, but then Tanzania, you see the same kind of things, but you see Tanzania is probably a few years behind, right? Um, so we do see these kind of trends and we really want to not be late to them, be early, but then still be strategic about, you know, the relationships in those countries, uh, the users in those countries, are they already perhaps using a mobile phone? Uh, money wallet, for instance, is that penetration high? So for them, maybe it's a good step for us to start selling things like stocks, crypto. Um, so we also have a wide range of product services. So Sometimes you might launch certain like P2P in one market, wait for the regulation uh, to kind of catch up and start offering something like you know personal investments. So I would say regulation probably is the most important consideration when we uh, look at things.
0: Really, really interesting. Thank you for that insight, Sammy. Okay, we're just going to take a quick uh, pause here and we will be back very shortly. Hello, it's Benjamin here, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. Earlier this year, we published Building the Future of Home Buying, a report that calls out financial services for making the biggest, most significant purchase of most people's lives way more difficult than it needs to be. Well, fast forward to today and things haven't changed. Mortgage offerings are more important now than they have ever been, with sky-high interest rates in many countries forcing home buyers to shop around. We've got clients asking us how to move quickly to fix the problem and get a game-changing product to market. Want to know the secret? Step one, download the report at 11fs.com homebuying. Step two, get in touch at 11fs.com ventures. Speak soon. Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the news, I'm going to encourage you to go and listen to our most recent FinTech Insider Insights show. In our latest episode, we're asking, will FedNow flop or not? The US payments industry is abuzz following the launch of FedNow, the new instant payment service backed by the Federal Reserve, which launched on July the 20th. In historic terms, the launch is the first big upgrade of the US central bank system since the 1970s. We wanted to lift the lid on the impact it could have on US payments and where it puts the US in relation to innovation and payments in the rest of the world. So have a listen to that podcast in our podcast feed. It's the episode below this one. Right, let's get back into the news, picking up back where we left off with developments in African fintech. So this was reported in the Financial Times of London. Safaricom's mobile money rollout in Ethiopia marks the moment for the last frontier. Safaricom, uh, Kenya's biggest telecoms operator, is finally launching its mobile money service in Ethiopia, Africa's second largest country by population, and one hailed as the last frontier for digital banking. Safaricom is the first private telecoms provider in Ethiopia, and the market has to date proved hard to crack given the country's long history of state-led development, which promoted national control of many sectors, including telecoms and banking. According to Peter Ndegwa, chief executive of Safaricom, this is a cash country. Credit card penetration is not high here, but there are a lot of rural markets that still need to be connected. So mobile money has all the ingredients of success. The opportunity is massive. Sami, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, We were just talking about huge population, huge opportunity. Um, Is Peter of Safaricom right? Is Ethiopia a huge opportunity? Or is this quite a challenging market to to try and tap into?
4: No, I think it's probably... I would say in the last year or so with a lot of developments, it's now, as I mentioned, right, like we're kind of ready for that first phase of mobile money, right? Because um, we see that as essentially the capitalist when people get phones in their hands, they're getting exposed to the internet. Um, the first step is not simply moving to a bit more kind of like a wallet, like chipper or something. We always see people kind of getting familiar on this kind of more like mobile money side of things. So I do think, honestly, uh, the time is actually pretty good. Um, but I think, We'll only find out, right, once they can execute and we can see uh, how that happens. But I do think from the perspective of timing, I do think the market is right. There have been a lot of previous challenges with fintechs based on on the regulation, as you mentioned. A lot of stuff is state-led, but I do think we see a bit of softening on that side. So um, from that perspective, it's not a big surprise for Safari.com to kind of now really go uh, deep into the Ethiopian market.
0: And just just for the sake of our listeners, and I, sh- I probably should have checked with you beforehand, Sammy. Uh, Chibukash currently doesn't operate in Ethiopia. Is that correct?
4: Yes, uh, they, we have not really explored yet. But again, things can change.
0: Yeah, things can can indeed change. Now, um, Safaricom, of course, is famously successful because of um, M-Pesa and so on, and you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the case study of, of, of mobile money worldwide. Um, uh, David, can you just sort of take a strategy that's worked in Kenya and just sort of drop it in Ethiopia and expect it to work? I mean, what what's Safaricom going to have to do to try and replicate some of that success that they've had?
3: No, I mean, you know, everything from language to cultural differences to regulation to banking is all also fundamentally different. And don't also don't forget, like, um, Ethiopia's just gone through a war. Um, and uh, still there are is, a lot
0: of, still is, it, war, it still it? is yeah. in a war
3: um, at the moment. So it took something like two years to launch. The telecom license was secured in 2021, but Impesa actually had to wait. Until at least at a, you know at a high level the conflict in the north was actually actually resolved so you've got some of these some of these challenges to to be able to actually launch so I would say I would say in some senses no but in in some senses yes I mean you know you know as you said mobile money has been so transformative to uh, Kenya and there's lots of stats out there about how it's responsible for lifting hundreds of thousands of families out of out of poverty and you can imagine over time that it that it will do the same. And I think, Sammy, you said something very interesting earlier on about how, you know, mobile money in some senses is already seeming to be the legacy. Right, and so when you actually start by launching a mobile wallet um, like this in a new country, that then is the signal for other providers to start looking and seeing. You know, how are they doing? They're, they're making the infrastructural investments. They're getting the telecom licenses. They're getting mobile money in people's hands. Now that lays the foundations to to move into into other areas. And you know, we know that um, Mpesa um, are already launching a super app themselves. So they're, they're already thinking about other types of features and other types of financial services within Kenya and in other countries. So you can see what they're thinking of here, right? Because, you know, one of the big prizes is payments, but also the big, the other big prize is, is, you know, being able to recognize people's identity, being able to, you know, figure out whether or not they can take out a loan and loan to them. Um, So I I think um, it's the very, very first step, but in a very long road, I think.
0: Sarah, is there anything bad here. Is this Is this just a win-win-win story? I mean, is this good news for customers, good news for Safaricom, good news for the government? I mean, is this just, is this just unfettered good news all round? Um, or, or are there any sort of catches or downsides here? Uh,
2: well, people who know me and know this podcast know that uh, cynical is, is my general um, approach to life. Um, I don't think there's ever any such thing as win-win-win. I think if they can make it work, and it can be, a, a tr- when I say truly independent, I mean, if it can be putting the customers' needs first above everything else. And if it can manage to overcome the situation in Ethiopia, that is not a country that I <laughs> I would ever, ever want to go and try business in uh, to run a business or start a business in right now, just because of all the, the the hurdles we've mentioned. If they can overcome that and if they can launch a service that genuinely helps individuals and small businesses um, you know, and improves their lives, which it will if if they can get it rolling, then that is a win for everybody. Um, I think it's going to be, you know, as already been mentioned repeatedly, a very long road um, and it's not an easy journey. But the thing to say, I guess, partly is, um, well, there's two things. One is they've already invested a huge amount in making this happen. They've waited a long time. They've invested a lot of resources, whether that's money or time or, you know, whatever else isn't getting this far. Um, So they're going to want to make it work. Uh, you know, the, 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 as far as I'm going to do everything it possibly can to make this work, but it's it's fascinating. I applaud them for doing it, and I really, really hope it does succeed.
0: Sammy, who do, who do you think really benefits from from this? With, sort of, which sort of sections of society is it? Is it people who live in rural areas, you know, farmers and so on, who are able to get information? Is it is it traders? Is it people in the cities? Is it people who who you know trying to send money? to and from Ethiopia? Who who, who benefits most from, from the uh, development of mobile money?
4: I think, honestly, it comes in stages. The way I see it is essentially one of the biggest problems people have, uh, you know, in these countries when they don't have accessible financial services is sending money geographically across the country, right? So you have people working, you know, you have rural urban migration. These patterns are still happening, right? So you have to me, the biggest pain points is where you have workers leaving villages, going into urban centers, earning money and having that money to be sent back home. Um, So we, I think that to me is very, uh, a very important problem to solve. Um, But then B it's also just kind of the catalyst for people to start getting more comfortable and trusting digital money more for them to start, you know, having essentially a plethora of more financial access in the future. So, you know, Starting with things such as, you know, sending money back home, uh, and then you start seeing businesses start using it, and then, you know, kind of really solidifying your money is portable, money is digital, that kind of thinking in people's minds. Um, And I think that, honestly, is just like a big lift up, right, on its own. But then, you know, when we look at kind of the, again, uh, long-term trajectory, uh, the way I see it is like people getting better at saving money, people getting better at managing wealth right like these are things honestly fintech can help a lot with um and that's where you know even when we talk on pesa with a super app and you know us at chipper cash um you know it's, it's it goes beyond just moving money right so i think but moving money from the uplift on its own it provides is massive like you know people having to carry cash and you know uh, kind of thinking about it in a cash first um perspective is it's just a you know Very, I guess for us, it's very old age, but it's still the reality for people. So kind of tackling that mobile money is just the best gateway, right? Uh, To kind of unlocking kind of this kind of financial consciousness in a lot of folks um, on the continent. And we already see dividends from that, right? So when we launched, for instance, our stocks product, it still really had this issue of like, people, do they understand, right? Like, do they understand they can put and trust money up at chipper and essentially get gains in the market. Um, you know, so trust is a big component, but then people understanding, okay, can we put money away for a month or a year and then still get that money back? You know, it's a very basic thing, but I think mobile money helps to solidify that trust in digital systems and then opens up, uh, you know, a plethora of use cases downstream. Um, and then, you know, this is what people need, right? They pay for healthcare, education, day-to-day costs, moving across countries as well, right? For us at Chipper, for instance, cross-border is massive, um, right? So we see this happening in stages. So when we look at Ethiopia, I expect this kind of rural-urban uh, kind of migration bit to be helped by uh, people having money to send back home. That money travels faster. People can spend that money faster. So, you know, starts there. But I think uh, the, the road is long, and we're uh, very excited um, to see this, yeah.
0: I, I completely agree. It's just it's huge. It make this is where fintech makes such a big difference for people is when you know, when it really just sort of opens up the whole economy and brings people into the in, into the economy and makes it just so much easier for them to sort of understand their money and, and get access to it. Um David, thirty-second question to you. Um does mobile money end up as a natural monopoly? You know, is does SafariCom have a big advantage by being first into Ethiopia? Um is it a natural monopoly, or can you get competition where you have multiple sort of mobile money systems? In countries,
3: I think uh, I think there is competition, right? I think actually, um, I mean, I'm quite familiar with a company called Nala, and um, you know, one of the one of the problems that they're solving is is helping people to send money to multiple m type wallets. So, yes, I mean, in some senses, it is a natural initial monopoly because of all of the upfront infrastructure. But in a country that has multiple telcos with with multiple you know licensing infrastructures, then yes, there the, the becomes then a a plethora of different types of m services, and then when you layer on Top of that, digital wallets as well. It can get quite, it can get quite confusing. But as being the first mover for a while, they definitely have, I think, that um, short-term monopoly. Anyway,
0: but lots, lots for others to play for in yes. time. And, and and to Sammy's point, lots of it opens up so many other doors. Okay, um, well, let's move on to our last big story, um, which is that a new fintech accelerator, Archie has launched in London, and this was reported in AltFi. The new venture is looking to identify and partner with a portfolio of early-stage fintechs globally, working alongside founders to help supercharge their growth. Initially focusing on startups in the UK, Australia, and Middle East, Archie says it will work side-by-side with fintech founders, deploying its team of experts to help maximize their chances of success. Um, According to Anthony Thompson, co-founder and chair of Archie, Fintechs are a force of good. For years, they've disrupted the financial services industry, providing better products, services and experiences for customers. But despite many great ideas, too many have fallen short, having not had the support they need. Archie will change that. Our team is perfectly positioned to offer the real hands-on senior support they need and crucially provide it now, with it being more important than ever for fintechs to use resources in the right way, he added. Sarah, we saw you were tweeting about this one and how the UK doesn't need another accelerator. Um, Can you expand on that? Because, you know, we saw Tech Nation uh, closing down and so on. I mean, why doesn't the UK need another accelerator, perhaps?
2: I mean, first and foremost, what fintechs need right now is cash. Um, the You know, there are benefits to working with an accelerator, 100%. And and somebody who was previously working, uh, you know, for an accelerator at founder's factory, I, I, I think there are genuine benefits. But I think right now, this doesn't feel like a proposition that is particularly beneficial to most, certainly fintechs in the UK. And I know that the situation is similar across Australia as well. Um I have concerns about the model. Um, Taking equity in return for advice and no cash is concerning to me. Um, It's not uncommon for, uh, you know, uh, members of the board or NEDs to take equity in return for kind of advice, but those people are – dedicated to one up to sort of five or six fintechs. I don't know how big the Archie team is. I don't know how possible it's going to be for them to be on hand day to day to actually offer the level of support that I think they're promising. Um, and yeah, as I said, the the the, the model of, um, you know, equity in return for advice has been soundly criticized very recently across the board. Um particular, you know, a couple of famous investors in the US have just been outright ripped apart for it recently. So um, it feels a little tone deaf to me. Um, The other thing I'd say is that the founders or the two, you know, named members who, um, uh, you know, Anthony and and his colleague, whose name I've I've now forgotten, um, but are touting the fact that they started Successful Bank's well, yes, that's true, but in a very, very different time and in a very, very different environment. Um, so, you know, how, how relevant is their experience? I'm sure some of their experience is, is relevant, but given the, the current climate is what they have to offer, what fintechs need, um, and I haven't seen anything that proves that to be the case.
0: David, what do you think of of, of of Sarah's points and also the actually, the, you know, the premise that um, fintechs have fallen short because they didn't have the support they needed? Um, do you agree with the premise or do you
3: agree with Sarah's analysis? Oh, it was quite stinging, um, but uh, but actually, I think there's no no there's definitely a lot of truth into it. Right, there's a lot of generic accelerators out there that just don't give the uh, the advice that you need, so you end up by giving away a lot of equity for not getting very much. But if we just take a step back and think about you know, what it is that fintechs need to scale. And yes, cash, very important. The second thing, you know, what I hear time and time again from banks and incumbent financial institutions is, this sounds very great. It seems to work, but it doesn't integrate with my systems. My compliance won't let me buy it. Um, And your team is too small and inexperienced, and I can't see how you're going to scale. And so, yes, cash is going to solve some of that. Advice will solve a lot of that if it is the right advice. And I think this is the difference between, uh, you know, a bunch of founders sitting there and saying, great, I've got a whole bunch of AWS credits. This is very good. You know, I have an access, you know, to a panel of uh, of angel investors. Yes, it's very good. But what I really need is very, very specific advice on how to comply, on how to apply for a license. What I need is a link into exactly the right person in an engineering department in this particular Bank who is going to tell me exactly what I need to do to be able to comply, and when I've been working with ventures and these incumbent financial institutions, that is the problem. If someone can come in and help to solve that problem um, in a way that maximises the you know the the contacts that the founders of, of Archie will have. Then it will work, and you know, it, it, I think a lot of it comes down to the nuts and bolts of what their plan actually is. But if they are a small team, and if they are a small team that is focused on retail, so Atom Bank and Metro Bank, to retail banks, yes, from a from a previous world, but they will have some relevant experience So if they keep it small and keep it narrow, uh, and keep it focused on retail banks where their expertise is. Perhaps maybe they can make some some difference. But I mean, I completely agree with the 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 idea that. Just having a, a generic, you know, particularly, you know, requiring um, equity just, just for advice, you know, it's going to come down to what that advice actually is and what doors they can open and what they can actually do.
0: Sammy, Chippercash is obviously, you know, a successful um, business. It is sort of beyond this, sort of the accelerated stage. But what, what's, what's your thinking on this? Would you have been happy giving away equity for advice?
4: I have... Um a bit of an interesting opinion, I'd say on this. I'm a, not a big fan of accelerators, even though I would say um, Chipper Cash, we were incubated in a accelerator, 500 startups. It's very helpful, but I think it comes in, you know, you have really, really great programs out there that are really trying to encourage the aspect of building and and, and, and really look at startups. And, you know, so we have, you know, in the Valley, things like YC, there's South Park Commons, you know, 500 startups I just mentioned. And then, if I look at a lot of accelerators in emerging markets, you know, like I mentioned from Pakistan, so that prism and then seeing some accelerators in Africa, it's, you know, I have a lot of uh, concern and a lot of apprehension about some of the trends some of these accelerators are setting up for early stage founders. Um, I think a lot of points were already covered. Um, Something, you know, just giving away a big chunk of your equity for advice, but also like they end up being essentially like uh, kind of like sales funnels, right, for a lot of the accelerators to set, sell products, right, um, in their ecosystem, which I've kind of encountered with other startups giving them advice. Why don't you build this? And all. oh, my investor, um, they're also leading uh, this round and this, and, and and then they put pressure. Of course, it's not exclusive accelerators, but we do see a lot of uh, kind of the equity money coming and investors coming from that accelerator side, kind of really pushing people to kind of, you know, be a part of their cabal in terms of their set of suites and products and does not allow founders to really think from first principles. So that is my big concern. It also encourages in my head a lot of entrepreneurship because you kind of go into this accelerator and they kind of give you a lot of this, you know, AWS credits and also it already gives you a fake sense of progress, um, right? Like, so I think uh, it, it does not really set up people well, but again, I feel like it's one of those kind of like, Not even 90, 10, I'd say 199, right? Like 1% of them being very, very good and 100% amazing value add, but the large share of them, right? Uh, Not giving enough value. And I think that is always the concern with some of these programs.
0: So I think what we're saying is that while while this, Archie, may be very well intentioned, um, the outcome may not be helpful for all of the all of the fintechs. Um, I think, Sarah, you, you know, your point about the advice for equity is is a very, very interesting one, isn't it? Of, of um, to some extent, is this a, a bunch of successful people trying to get a stake in these, inter- you know, these interesting fintechs? Um, but maybe,
2: hmm? yeah. I mean, I do wonder why, with the names they have and the successes they have, you know, sorry, with the, the you know the personal brands they've built, the successes they have behind them, why they're not just doing this as an angel or doing this as a non-executive director? Like what's in it for them to do it in this kind of I suppose commercial, it's commercial anyway, but like commercialized way. Why Why not just spend their time? And the markets you look at, those are markets that, that Anthony knows very well because he's operated businesses across them. You know, they're launching in Dubai to start with, which again is a really interesting choice. Hugely um, energetic fintech market, 100%, you know, a market worth looking at, but, but why there? So yeah, I think, I think perhaps it's unfair to question the, the, the motivation of the founders, but I think given the way they've chosen to do it, no, I do think it's fair to question the motivation of the founders, actually. I'd just like to know a bit more. I think I'd like to hear a bit more from them about kind of why they've chosen to do it this way.
0: All right. I think we will wrap up that story with the question of, OK, what problem is this really solving? And is it indeed really true that that great ideas have fallen short because they didn't have the support that they needed? And that that may be true. Um, but I think there's a certain amount of scepticism in this particular panel. Okay, so we're going to move on to uh, Big Click Energy, which is a quick-fire roundup of some of the more clickworthy worthy news uh, for this week. David, what do you have for us?
3: Right, first up, X, formerly known as uh, Twitter. Uh, gains payment licenses in seven U.S. states. Um, This is from Finextra. After his $43 billion takeover of Twitter in April, Elon Musk outlined his ambitions to transform the platform into a financial super app. The new payment licenses from states of Arizona, Georgia, Maryland, Michigan, Missouri, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island are among the first steps to be taken to realize his vision. Musk has said that he envisions users connecting their online bank accounts to the social media service, with the company moving later into debit cards, checks, and what not. Interesting. So... On episode six nine seven of FinTech Insider, we hypothetically discussed whether social media banks would ever take off, Um, and I highly encourage a listen uh, to that episode. It's a very very interesting discussion. I suppose the first thing we could say is, could this be the start of it happening um, for real? I mean, I think I think it is. You know, I think that uh, Elon Musk is very serious about doing this. Whether or not it's a good idea, or whether it's going to, um, you know, translate his forty three billion dollar investment into something even larger remains to be seen. It's a highly competitive marketplace. There's lots of fintech out there doing lots of wonderful, amazing things, Um, you know, they could very easily just be partnering with uh, PSPs and creating their own ecosystem based around Twitter as an identity. This is the the thing I kind of don't understand a little bit is like, there are many options when you think about going into fintech, many different ways of doing it, which, which maximize your strengths. Um, rather than trying to do all of this themselves, I kind of I kind of wonder, also particularly when he's not entirely sure what it is he's gonna do because he said debit cards, checks, and whatnot. So do you, do you not have a whatnot? I, I I think I have several whatnots, I just don't know what they are. <laughs> okay, let's move
0: on. So our next story is that open banking has reached eleven million payments, milestone, eleven million payments a month. Uh, According to Fintech Finance, open banking in the UK has surpassed 11 million payments in July 2023. This reflects a 9% increase in total payments compared with the previous month. Year-to-date data for 2023 against 2022 demonstrates that total payments have doubled, showing a growth of 102%. In July 2023, the number of active payment users surged to 4.2 million, uh, a substantial 10% rise from June 2023, the previous month. Among the Drivers of growth are single domestic payments, which recorded 10.5 million transactions in July, an 8% increase from June. Um, so, as with open, as with most stories on open banking, it really depends on what you expected at the beginning. Because if you didn't expect open banking to be very big, then this is good news. If, on the other hand, you expected open banking to be the biggest thing since sliced bread, then this is actually a bit disappointing. Because 11 million payments, while well, it sounds like quite a lot in a population like the UK, where there's about 70 million people and um, you know 60 odd million adults, 11 million payments per month really isn't very much. Uh, Transport for London. Um, uh, has something like 2 million payments on its Oyster cards every day. So in you know, about a week, uh, that's doing as many payments as open banking. So good progress, but still very small. And I, you know, I remain disappointed that we haven't seen wider adoption of open banking and, and more use of that um, to speed up and accelerate um, payments in the UK. and I know there are lots of people working really hard to make that happen. Um, so this is good news, but still um, still so much more potential. Okay, and finally, let's have the final section of the show, which is a look at something more offbeat from the news this week. So Venmo is partnering with greeting card manufacturer Hallmark to let you send a physical gift card loaded with money. People will be able to choose a card, scan the QR code inside the card, add the amount they want to give, write a note, and send it. The recipient can then scan the QR code and add the money to their Venmo account. Uh, According to a Venmo spokesperson, collaborating with Hallmark not only brings Venmo into the physical gifting space, but also helps connect generations accustomed to giving physical greeting cards with cash to younger generations who are used to having everything digital like a grandparent sending a birthday gift to their grandchild or a family celebrating a recent graduation. Following a user survey, PayPal-owned company said that 78% of the survey participants use Venmo to send gifts to each other. Um... Sammy, let's bring you in first as, as as the American resident in the call. Is this a is this a good team up? Would you use this service if uh, you know if uh, if you if you could? Would is, is something is this something Chipper might offer to its customers? What do you think?
4: I think it's 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 a fun idea for sure. I think I think their kind of point around you know a lot of people use them to send gifts to their loved ones. I, I think I relate to that for sure. I think. Uh, But I do ultimately see this as more, you know, it's a growth marketing kind of thing. Um, But I do write like this idea of like even digital surfaces, right, essentially trying to ensure they have some kind of physical presence in people's lives, right? Like, okay, you have this kind of nice kind of card and then they can customize it. So I do think um, it's it's a fun idea. Um, But that's where I I I would not say like it's probably a massive revenue stream or anything around that, but. It's just a, a really smart uh, and effective for uh, even a chipper. I think that's something um, I think people would like and appreciate. Um, but again, I think more on the marketing side. But I don't see this as essentially something grabbing a lot of uh, money.
0: Yeah. Sarah, is this is this bringing um, sort of a ca- cash in a card up to date, or is this just a gimmick for a, for a, for a media release?
2: I see the intention as somebody who lives with somebody who still gets checks from their, <laughs> their um, relatives at, at Christmas and birthdays or even, you know, in fact, the only cash we have in this house comes from my partner's elderly relatives that gets sent at birthday and Christmas and it goes in a pot and then when we need to get a taxi, somebody, you know, ferages around the pot. Um, I see the intention, but who is going to teach the people that they're targeting how to do this? If the people that they're targeting already don't use Venmo, if they are older relatives or people who are untrusting of digital services, who is going to be standing in, I don't know, the British, uh, it'd be WH Smiths in the UK, but whatever the, <laughs> the equivalent is in the US going, okay, you want to to do this, this is how it works, this is how you, you know, you have the money, this is what your, uh, you know, whoever it is, loved one is going to have to do with it at the other end, I think... If that's genuinely what they're trying to do, if they're genuinely trying to replace, you know, the, the notes or the checks inside cards and envelopes at Christmases and birthdays or whatever, then there needs to be an education element to it. Um, but, you know, if it works, it works. Although when I first read it, I thought gift cards, gift cards. I still have one of those that's three years out of date <laughs> and I never got round to spending. Although if you do scan the QR code and upload to your VM account, I can see that's a much easier process than having to, to go somewhere to spend it. But yes, my biggest... If we're taking it seriously, thought is there's an educational piece that's perhaps missing here.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right. What are the worst um, sort of birthday cards or gifts you've ever got? Have you ever had a terrible or oh, useless uh, birthday card or gift from a from a great aunt or a great uncle or some obscure relative who doesn't listen to FinTech
3: Insider? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've definitely received a card that says "Congratulations!" You know, you're you're old now, or something like that. I think I think we've all got things like that, which is sort of great. Thank you. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anyone
0: else uh, had uh, had had struggles with um, useless useless gifts from well-meaning relatives?
4: I'd say I think for me, I guess it's uh, one time I got uh, for my graduation uh, from college. Um, Someone uh, sent in uh, not a happy graduation, but I think it was just to pick the wrong card. It was like happy marriage. And I think that was just <laughs> left a lot of, uh, I was like some deep metaphor or like, I, I was like, I don't know. I, I found out they they had it. But again, I think to the point of uh, bad gifts, I think people, you know, at the end of the day, it's the, it's the gesture, right? So I don't, I don't think people mind too much at the end of the day, so.
2: Talking of my partner, his family, it's deliberate, but they send the worst possible birthday card they can find. So they often come sort of saying to the most amazing son in the world with, you know, kind of badges and streamers and things attached. And they are every year they try and get tackier and tackier. But I would say that they are knowingly doing so um, purely because it's of the entertainment value. But yeah, some of the things they send. I'm like, where did you find this? How did you find this?
0: Yeah, my my wife's family specialise in sending each other fantastically rude Uh, (laughs) cards. All right. Well, that brings us uh, to the end of this week's Fintech Insider show. Thank you so much uh, to uh, my guests today. Where can people find out a little bit more about you? Sarah, let's start with you
2: uh so you can still find me on whatever it's called today x i believe last time i checked um at sarah kachansky you can also find me on threads at sarah kachansky i'm very fond of threads it's it's a much nicer space to be in um so if you want to come and talk about fintech you can find me there and you can also find me on linkedin um old school and Sammy, where can people find out more about you and Chippergash?
4: yes so um definitely follow um i'm on twitter i think uh, a lot of our um you know some of our leaders are also on Twitter. So I'm on Twitter at some easy underscore x. Um, and then uh, on LinkedIn too, where we kind of do a lot of our, we're going to keep on doing a lot of announcements. We have a lot of stuff on, on, on the pipelines so of like a mentorship identity, but we have a lot of uh, kind of a packed uh, end of the year. So if you really want to follow what we're up to, uh, LinkedIn um, and Twitter are probably the best ways to find more.
0: And David.
3: And on LinkedIn, uh, nice and simple, just LinkedIn, uh, David Barton Grimley.
0: And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn and you can find out more about the work that the team are doing on 11FS.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Please do join the conversation on social media or you can even email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.